So it's Christmas season, which means it's the season for gifts. And this year, I think it's especially difficult to think about finding the right gift. Now, it's always difficult, but with supply chains and disarray and with rising inflation, I think it's especially tough for many this year. But I noticed this week that 23andMe is offering a 35% discount on their DNA testing kits, on their ancestry kits. So take that inflation, not all parts of the economy have rising prices. You know, and that, that advertisement just reminded me and actually speaks to, to a really a growing market, this consumer DNA testing market, which has really exploded over the past decade. And, and with these new mail order kits that are often promoted, especially during the holidays, you can learn about your ethnic ancestry by, by pie chart percentages. You can compare family trees. You can look even at genetic traits, a topic that just has boundless interest for many. And so actually for Christmas, uh, not long ago, I was actually given one of the Ancestry.com, one of those testing kits, and, and it had this tagline, this holiday, give the gift that brings families together. But you know what, I wasn't so sure, because I'd read a little bit of some of the stories of, of individuals sending in these kits and then getting the results back and, and learning about siblings they never knew they had or learning that their biological father actually wasn't the father who reared them. But thankfully when I got back, when I got mine back, there were no surprises that confirmed much of what I knew. I'm 94% British, which explains my coloring. I'm red, I'm white, I'm never tan. <laughs> explains my disposition, which is on the whole very reserved, except occasionally when it comes to sport. It also explains my absolute inability to cook anything edible. <laughs> it also said I was related to many of the first English settlers in Massachusetts, Vermont, and New Hampshire, which also I knew because in my office I've had the land grant given to my family from Charles I back in 1635 for settlements there in northern Massachusetts. And yet it also said I was likely related to Mormon pioneers who migrated to Utah in the late 1800s, which was entirely news to me because no one had ever talked to me and my family about any Mormon relatives. I don't know if that's like 6% of me that is Swedish and not British. Do I have some long-lost relatives in Utah? It got me thinking. And it turns out, it got me thinking, oftentimes these things will get you thinking because we are fascinated by our origins. There is just something within us that desperately wants to know where we came from. Knowing something of where we came from often gives us meaning, it gives us understanding. Knowing our origins can say a lot about us. So friend, the question I want to ask you is what do Jesus' own origins, what do they say about him? What did Jesus' origins say about him? And that's the question we're going to be thinking about this morning as we begin a four-week Advent series in the Gospel of Matthew. So I invite you to turn there now to Matthew chapter 1. If you're using the Bibles in the seat back before you, you can find it, I believe, on page 807. Page 807. 
Now, Matthew is the first of the Bible's four Gospels. And that word gospel literally just means good news. Specifically, what God has done through Jesus Christ to save his people, right? Through Christ's death and life and resurrection. But not in that order exactly. His life, then his death, and then his resurrection. And so when Christians speak of the four Gospels, we don't actually mean, though, that there are four distinct separate, maybe even contradictory messages about Jesus. You know, when Christians in the first century used that word gospel, they always referred to this singular message about Jesus, not to the distinct writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So there was always in the early church one gospel. There was one message about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they spoke of this one gospel according to Matthew, or the one gospel according to Mark, or according to Luke. So one message, but yes, also recounted by four different authors. And each author makes their own distinct contribution and and helps us see from different angles the life and ministry of Jesus. And yet they share that same fundamental message. And the gospel, according to Matthew, as I said, is the first of the gospels. It is where the Old and New Testaments meet. And I mean that literally. It is there in your Bibles where the Old and New Testaments meet, but also thematically because Matthew was Jewish and seems to have written predominantly for a Jewish audience, evidenced by the fact that he has over 200 direct quotations or allusions to the Old Testament. And thus, Matthew will powerfully display, as I think we're going to start to see this morning, how all the Old Testament promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. You could basically title the book of Matthew, A Presentation of Jesus, the Fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's a pretty faithful way to think of Matthew. So as we think about this book, as we think about the first 17 verses, look down with me, Matthew 1, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Friends, that's our, those are our verses. That's our text. And you might be thinking, man, it would have been great just to start in verse 18. Right, we come to this reading. Some of you may, as you do Advent readings, you may just skip right over the first 17 verses because the reality is we're really interested in our own genealogies, but we're not that interested in the genealogies of other people. Many of us just wished, again, Matthew had started verse 18. The birth of Christ took place in this way, right? That's the, that's the way to start a gospel right there. We can't pronounce these names often, let alone connect to them, right? people who lived in the far distant past, detached from us. But part of what I want us to see this morning is that this introduction and this genealogy is not just about an ancient people. This genealogy actually is about us. It's actually about us. And that, that word genealogy can actually mean just genesis or beginnings. It can mean the genealogy of a family line but it can also mean beginnings like the Old Testament book, right? Genesis, same word there, beginnings. And just a little bit of Bible background here in case you're unfamiliar, so just hang in for a moment. The New Testament, if you're unaware, was largely written in Greek and the Old Testament largely written in Hebrew. But by the time that Matthew is writing this gospel, many of the Jewish people have lived in functional exile for, for over 100 years, and they've been occupied by Rome, and they have not had the same exposure to the Hebrew Old Testament. Greek had become sort of the common trade language. It was the language of the Greco-Roman world. And so many Hebrews are actually more familiar with Greek than they were their own Hebrew. And so... Their Bible, their Old Testament for many Hebrews, was actually the Greek translation of the Old Testament, what we refer to as the Septuagint. That Greek translation, the Septuagint, would have been their only access to the Old Testament. And that expression, book of the genealogy, how Matthew opens, book of the genealogy there in verse 1, that exact expression is actually used twice in the book of Genesis. The first to describe the creation of of the heavens and the earth, and the second time, so the first time in Genesis 2-4, the second time in Genesis 5-1 to, to describe the, the creation of the human race. So when Matthew opens up to a group that would be largely Jewish, his audience, and yet very familiar, likely, with the, with the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Matthew uses that same expression in order to say, I think this isn't simply any family tree I'm giving you. What I'm about to write for you is a book. And I'm giving you a book of new beginnings. I'm giving you a book, hearkening back to Genesis 4, of a new creation, of a new heavens and a new earth. I'm giving you a book, in fact, that's going to be about a new humanity. And you, Matthew is hinting at, you can be in this book. You can be a part of this new humanity, and yet it's all going to be centered around this person, Jesus Christ. So if you've come this morning, and you would love a new start, right? you just love to hit either rewind back into the start of 2021, or you just like to hit fast forward and, and burn or bury whatever 2021 held for you. If that's you, this gospel this morning... This book about a new beginning that is ushering in a new heavens and a new earth and a new humanity, this book, Matthew says, is for you. 
It is for you. And you can find these new beginnings, he says, in this person, Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but I knew those words, Jesus Christ. I didn't really know them as about a particular person per se. Honestly, I rather heard them, and I spoke them more as a cuss word than speaking to this biblical individual. And when I thought of the words Jesus Christ, I thought Jesus was right, his, his sort of his given name, and Christ was a surname. Christ was his last name. But friends, just know that Christ is actually not his last name. It's, it's not his, his surname, and it's not a cuss word, despite of how I may have used it. Christ is a title, and it literally means just anointed one, promised one, Messiah. So we speak of President Biden or General MacArthur, right? You've got a title in the person's name. When we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus, the Messiah, We're saying something about Jesus. And the Old Testament Messiah was promised to deliver God's people. And friends, when Matthew's writing, God's people need delivering. Right? It's what we read earlier, come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Because the people of Israel lived under that heavy boot of Roman oppression. Now we see films about Rome, right? Maybe we've seen even the opening scene to a movie like Gladiator, and we're like, oh yeah, that's pretty awesome. But from a couch it is. Right? If you are at the other end of a Roman sword, right, that's a horrifying existence. Rome ruled with an iron fist. And so when Matthew says that this new beginning that God is doing is about the Messiah, Now, that's going to get people's attention. You know, in our house, we've got two labs. And uh, at night, deer, I live in the middle of the city, and yet deer still come down from Mount Sequoia, and they hang out in our front yard, and our labs know it. And they've learned that word deer. So in our house, they could be in another room. They could be sawn logs. And if we just say, deer, I mean, heads shoot up. They come running in like that anxious energy like just quivering as it courses through their bodies like they want out they know that word it grabs their attention from anywhere in any place friends if you were to say messiah at this time in israel's existence that would grab everybody's attention right if you if you were in a public place every mouth would stop and everyone would be looking at the person who just uttered that word what did they have to say and rome would be paying taking notice, right? They'd be paying attention. Matthew's point in this opening passage is going to be to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. It's how he opens in verse 1, but notice it's how he closes in verse 16. Jesus, right, who is called Christ. It's how the closing section ends in verse 17. And he's going to prove it by tracing Jesus through David and Abraham. So just notice the structure of 1 to 17. Right? Verse 1, the Christ, related to David, related to Abraham, genealogy, and then back to David, verse 17, or back to Abraham, verse 17, David and Christ. So Christ, Abraham, Christ, David, Abraham, genealogy, Abraham, David, Christ. That's the structure of verses 1 to 17. And the fact, Matthew says, that Jesus is the son of David, that's going to tell us what kind of Messiah he is. And the fact that he's the son of Abraham 
will tell us what kind of people he came to save. So if you think of one, verse one is an introduction to this whole section. To put the point another way, what kind of Messiah is he? The first thing I want us to see is that he's your sovereign. He's your sovereign. What kind of people did he come to save? Well, that's point two. He can be your savior. He can be your savior. So those, just those are going to serve as the two points. Jesus, what is this genealogy teaching us about him? What do his origins tell us? He is your sovereign, and I don't just mean Israel's. I do mean yours. He can also, secondly, be your savior. So let's think firstly, he is your sovereign. Gets the kind of Messiah Jesus is. He is your sovereign as in he is your king. Now, some of you may be thinking right now, okay, Brad, you seem to have forgotten high school civics, right? We don't live in a monarchy. This is a constitutional republic. Maybe all that British blood, like it's confusing you, you know? And by the way, you may be thinking Jesus is dead. How can you say he is my sovereign? Well, friend, if you go on and read through the Gospels, Jesus, in fact, isn't dead. But that's for a different sermon. And by connecting Jesus to the line of David, Matthew is highlighting Jesus' own royal rule. Because we read earlier in the service from 2 Samuel 7 of how God promised that one of David's descendants would rule on his throne and notice that rule would not be temporary. That rule would be eternal. That rule would be everlasting and it would, it would endure forever. And this whole genealogy is actually structured around this promise that one would come from David's throne. So notice the genealogy is, is put together in three groups of 14 generations. And all those groups are meant to highlight the kingship of David. So notice verse 6. The first set of those generations from Abraham to David ends with Jesse, the father of David, the king, verse 6. Now, in this genealogy, other kings are going to be listed, but only David is going to be identified as king, right? He's uniquely being singled out in this genealogy. And then if we go to the second set of 14, from David to the deportation to Babylon, that we were thinking about in Isaiah's prophecy, as we, were th as we thought about that, right? The, there, Babylon and the, the royal line, it seems, would be cut off down to a stump. There's very little hope for Israel and, and we're seeing that with sort of the loss of the royal line almost. And then in the last set of 14, we go from the sort of back to the, from, from the exile to the partial return of the exile. And we end with Jesus who is called Christ or Messiah or for the Jews they would hear King. So Matthew is all shaping this to show us that Jesus is the King, the tree of David that had been hacked off so that only a stump remained, that tree is now Isaiah 11 sprouting a new branch. David's greater son has finally come. Which explains, if you're at all curious, why Matthew and Luke's genealogies differ a little bit. Now, we could spend a whole sermon thinking about the differences between Matthew and Luke's genealogies. Some of you think a one sermon on this one is enough. I've seen whole people spend 50 minutes describing the differences. I'm going to spare you that. It's a fine thing to do. But I think the clue to understanding the difference between Matthew and Luke is that Matthew here is tracing Jesus' royal line from Solomon, how he is in this great succession of Jewish kings, how Jesus is the rightful legal heir to the throne of David, whereas what Luke is going to do is Luke's going to trace the line differently. He's going to trace it more biologically all the way back to Adam.
but Jesus' kingship is just even implied to that number 14. So you're like, what's the deal with 14? Why are these generations set up in four sets of 14? Well, that's not accidental. That's intentional. You know, and if you know your history, you read through some of these names, and Matthew left some people out. In other words, these, this genealogy is deliberately selective. Matthew skips people. He includes some. He jumps over others. In other words, this is not meant to be an exhaustive genealogy of Jesus' life. So, note, Matthew's not giving us simply biological information about Jesus. This isn't sort of an exhaustive Ancestry.com royal tree. But this is rather a rich theological interpretation and reflection of Jesus' own lineage. So what's the significance of 14? Well, friends, Hebrew actually doesn't have numerals. So if you want to use numbers, you have to assign a number to a consonant. Hebrew also doesn't have vowels, for that matter. So if you look at the name David, DVD, D is 4, V is 6, the name David, 464, actually adds up to 14. And David's name is 14th on the list. So this is Matthew's explicit and implicit way of, again, just showing us and really piling up proof that Jesus is the new David. He is this king that Israel was promised. And notice even the repetition. Over and again, we read so-and-so fathered so-and-so. Or if you know the old King James, so-and-so begat. Right? It's the great begats section. So-and-so begat so-and-so. So as a total aside, um, I don't know if you guys know Andrew Peterson. He actually composed that song we sang last week, Is He Worthy? He has a really fun song called Matthew's Begats. So if you want to memorize these names... Learn that song, have a lot of fun with it, Matthew's begats, I leave that for you. Fun stuff. Point being, though, the cadence of so-and-so begat so-and-so, it, it almost lulls us to sleep. It just, it occurs over and over again. But there are a number of places where Matthew diverges, where he, he breaks the pattern, and when he does, that usually has some special significance. So right there in verse 2, we read that Jacob is the father of Judah, and then he throws in, and his brothers, which is Matthew's reminder to the reader that Jacob fathered, remember, the 12 tribes of Israel. But in those 12 tribes, the royal line of David is not actually traced through the firstborn Reuben, nor is it through Joseph, right? Joseph's the one who gets so much airtime in, in the latter half of Genesis, right? He's the one that Jacob especially loves, remember, his, his wonderful coat. He's the one who kind of mocks the brothers. He's also the one the brothers throw into the pit, get sold into slavery, but then God uses him in Egypt to help save his own people from famine, right? That Joseph is the one we talk about. He's not the one in the royal line. The royal line comes through Judah. Who was Judah's mom? Ah, Judah's mom was Leah, Remember, Leah was the wife who was rejected by Jacob, and yet the one who was so deeply loved and honored by God. You know, just stopping there to reflect on that for a moment, I think there's a good word for us. How God so regularly delights to use that which the world rejects. Those that are shamed by the world, those that are despised by the world, those whom the world just passes by with barely a notice, God doesn't pass them by. He sees them in their humility. He sees them in their own poverty, and he sees them, and he sets his love upon them, and he exalts them one day. And Leah is a wonderful example of that. 
Friends, that's part of what Nick Roark two weeks ago, right, helped us see as we were thinking about the gospel of Luke. And friends, is that not witnessed in Jesus' very own life? The one who would be rejected by the world and yet exalted by God. Friends, if you are in Christ and experiencing the rejection of the world, you need to know you are loved by God, treasured and honored by God. That's not lost on God, and it shouldn't be lost on you. You know, in Genesis 49, God promises something specific from Leah's line. That the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the nations. That's Genesis 49.10. So part of what Matthew wants us to see is Jesus isn't just some little tribal king of some small and inconsequential people. No, Jesus is actually sovereign and king over all the nations. He's not just Israel's king. He's the people's king. He is the world's king. He is your king. All of this history has been building toward this moment. All of history building, bending, the the various turns and all of the twisting brings us to the moment when Jesus would be born as king, not just of Israel, but of the entire world. This genealogy isn't just giving us a list of names. It is announcing the arrival of this king, God's king, an everlasting king, which means, I might add, that you are actually not the center of the story. That you are not the center of history. The world doesn't revolve around you any more than the world revolves around me. Now, I love often to act, and sadly you can ask my wife, I love to act sometimes like the world revolves around me. Sadly, I often wish that the world did revolve around me. And again, sometimes I act like it does. But it doesn't. None of us here are the center of human history. Our generation, as important as we might think it is, our generation is not the center of human history. Our nation is not the center of human history. Billions have come before us. Billions may come after us. Empires have risen and empires have fallen. Countries, nations, kings, queens, celebrities, stars, friends, they have all come and gone. And at the center of it all yet stands one person, This Jesus the Christ, this King, he alone, Matthew says, is the sovereign of all history, and he is the sovereign of your life, which means one day every knee will either bow before him in willing and joyful submission, or those knees will be broken in frustration and in indignation. Friend, you will either bow the knee to Jesus or he will break your knees before him. But every one of us will bow because he is this king. He is the sovereign one. He is God's king. And the glorious truth about this sovereign is that this sovereign can also be your savior. This king can be your savior, not just Israel's, but yours. And friends, that's what I want us to think about in the second point. That Jesus can be your savior He can be your Savior. So if if being the son of David proclaims Jesus, says something about him as king, 
The fact that he is the son of Abraham proclaims him to us as Savior. Now, why would I say that? Well, Matthew, as we've noted, has already told us that his gospel is about new beginnings. And very, very back in the first beginning, right, back in Genesis, what did Genesis 12 promise? But that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Not just Israel, but all the families of the earth. Genesis 17 promised to make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations. Genesis 22, 18, and that in your offspring all the nations of the earth, we read, shall be blessed. So Matthew's helping us see by identifying Jesus with Abraham that God's plans were never merely about Israel. They were always larger than Israel. God's plans have always been about the nations. And was Israel to be a blessing to the nations? Yes, they were. They were to be that billboard that cried out, right? All are welcome. Consider and look how good God is, right? Come and see. That's what Israel was to be. And yet they failed in that mission. And so God would send his son, Jesus, the offspring of Abraham. But he would send him not to found just a national people, but to found an international people. Not just ethnic Israel would Jesus be about, but a new spiritual Israel, right? The Israel of God, Paul says in Galatians 6. What Matthew will later go on to describe is the church centered around this Jesus. So it was interesting, in a conversation with some of the residents this week, Andy Povalier and I were talking, and, and we were talking about this passage, and he just noted it should come as no surprise that this this gospel opens with Jesus as the promised seed of Abraham, the one for all the nations. And then how, of course, does this gospel close? Matthew 28, with Jesus sending his disciples out, what? But to all the nations. It's the very thing we've been pondering in Isaiah, even last week, how we're to be global Christians with this global vision because our God is a global God. And friends, that's a necessary reminder for us as a church that our fundamental identity as a church, as members of UBC, is not in any shared ethnic heritage. That's not our fundamental identity. It's not that we can trace our own ancestry to Abraham or to Ishmael or, or to any other figure for that matter. Our common identity as a church is and must always and only be around our common Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's one of the reasons why when we gather, we seek, however imperfectly, to make the only truly distinguishing mark of this congregation our shared love for Christ. That's what we want to be the grand distinguishing mark of us as a church, this common love we have for this Savior, Jesus Christ. So we don't make it around musical style. Some of you remind me of that every week. We don't make it around shared hobbies or interests, right? We're not a church just for, for bikers or young professionals. Or when my wife and I were in L.A., we were part of this church, I don't know why, but for aspiring artists. It was close to us. I was not an artist, but there it was. We're not to be a church of this political party or that party. Our, our grand distinguishing mark, therefore, shouldn't be political philosophy. It shouldn't be educational preferences, whether or not we homeschool or public school our kids. It shouldn't be our economic opinions. It shouldn't even be our vaccination status. Those things shouldn't be the fundamental distinguishing marks. The world will gather around those things, and yet in the church, to unite over those things, friends, all that does is obscure what is meant to be most obvious about us as a congregation, our bond commonly in Christ. 
Jesus came as a Savior for all, Jew and Gentile alike. And I think that's why Matthew chooses to highlight some rather unexpected names in his genealogy. You know, I noted earlier that when Matthew breaks that regular pattern of so-and-so fathered so-and-so, it's usually for a good reason. And to ask, we should be asking why. And so if you look in those first four verses, or rather verses two through six, Matthew breaks that pattern and he notes four specific women. He notes Tamar in verse two, Rahab in verse five, Ruth in verse five. He refers to the wife of Uriah, which is Bathsheba in verse six. Which begs the question, why would Matthew break his common pattern to introduce us to those individuals? Now, some will say that Jewish genealogies never included women. And this is Matthew's way of trying to highlight how Jesus explodes our notions of male hegemony and and patriarchy and things like that. And friends, I think that's partly right and partly wrong. It's wrong in that, in fact, the, the genealogy of 1 Chronicles 2 includes many women. So it's not unheard of to put women into Jewish genealogies. And if Matthew really wanted to correct some kind of sinful or abusive notions of, of male headship and authority, this would be an awfully obscure and rather oblique way to do it. He could just go to Genesis 1 and 2 if he wanted to for that. But it is partly right and that Jesus does, and we see this throughout his ministry, treat women with great dignity and respect as co-heirs of eternal life. He models what Israel and what we as a church ought always to model, what the Apostle Paul himself modeled, that though there will be functional distinctions and differences in the home and in the church, there is yet, above all that, a fundamental equality of dignity and value and worth between men and women. Women aren't uniquely sinners any more than men are uniquely sinners. They're equally made in God's image. And I think what's striking so much is therefore not that the women he mentions are women, but which women he mentions. I think that's more the point that Matthew's driving at. Because if he's going to introduce us to some women, we might expect Sarah, maybe, maybe Leah, maybe Rebecca. We might expect those names. Only we don't get those names. We get this rather unconventional group of names. right? Why these women, Rahab and Tamar and Ruth and Bathsheba? Well, friends, I think they share two common denominators that are going to tell us something. First, and we often forget this, these four women were Gentiles. They were Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabite. And by referring to Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah, of course, Uriah was what, a Hittite? We're being reminded even of Bathsheba's own Gentile associations. So Matthew, even there, is helping us see that in God's redemptive plan through the seed of Abraham, it was always to be a blessing to the nations. They were to be included into God's own purposes. But I think a second and unmistakable common denominator is also this. All those women, to one degree or another, were associated with sexual scandal. So if you recall, Tamar was involved in an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law. So Genesis 38 She had to pretend, Tamar did, to be a prostitute in order to sleep with Judah and carry on the family line. Rahab, who hid the spies, you know, in Jericho, we're explicitly told that she was a prostitute. And then there's Ruth. And remember, I think it's in in Ruth 3, when Ruth goes into 
Boaz, the night when he's been drinking a little bit. It's at the threshing floor. And what does she do? She goes and she uncovers his feet and she lays down with him. Now, all those words and associations in Hebrew can have various meanings. And friend, most of them are not G-rated. Especially when we're talking about a Moabite woman. And if you know Numbers 25, they were known as rather forward women. I'll just leave it at that. And of course, there's Bathsheba, and we know about her own adulterous affair with David. So all of these women had reputations clouded by either seedy rumors or by some kind of sexual suspicion. Friends, why would Matthew choose to highlight that? Not just that they're Gentiles, but Gentiles with those kinds of suspicions. Well, friends, think about Jesus' own birth. It's Christmas time, right? We sing and we, we have images of sweet Virgin Mary, right? Pure as a saint or whatever we might say. But friends, consider the scandal that would have surrounded Mary's own birth. An unwed Jewish teen becoming pregnant. And yet this is supposed to be, this child is supposed to be the world's savior. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's laughable. That's mockable. And so for those who would be tempted to look at Mary and to hear later of Jesus and to hear also of all these suspicions surrounding his unusual birth, I think that's Matthew's way of saying, hey, listen, have you guys forgotten your own history? Do you not know that this is so often how God has worked in the past? He's worked this way before. And you know, you look at Tamar, you look at Ruth, you look even at, at Rahab, in varying ways, all of them are commended in Scripture for their righteous actions. So I think in one sense, these women are serving as an apologetic for accusations that would come against a promiscuous Mary and a scandalous birth. But friends, it tells us something about Jesus too. It tells us something about Jesus. That he is not afraid to associate with the scandalous. Adultery, sexual immorality, prostitution, incest. That's his line. And he's not ashamed of it. It's no wonder we're going to find Jesus engaged with the woman at the well. It's no wonder we're going to see Jesus dining with tax collectors and sinners. These scandals don't scare Jesus. I mean, consider some of the others in this genealogy. David, remember, was, was an adulterer and a murderer. Many names listed here are associated with wickedness. Rehoboam, Abijah, Manasseh. This is a crooked family tree. This is not a clean and pretty family tree. It is a crooked one. And yet it's this tree in which the Savior of the world is going to enter into human history. It is not how we would write it. But it's how God has written it. And part of what we see is that Jesus, in fact, comes from a long line of scandalous sinners, which makes him uniquely able to identify with sinners and to save sinners. But friends, there's something for us in that as well, isn't there? God loves to work in the soil of scandal. It's what he loves to do. Whatever that scandal is, it doesn't scare him. Scandal doesn't frighten God off. Which means, friends, this morning, if you are relating in some way to these individuals, 
whether it is your sexual past, whatever that history may be, friends, God is not overwhelmed by it. He is not pointing the finger at you or turning away his head in shame. Whatever shame and guilt you may feel about your own history, God's not scared. God's not running. He saves it and he can actually redeem out of it. And friends, not only that, God can, in fact, use it. That's the crazy thing. God, in fact, can use that history. I mean, who would have thought of Leah and her abandonment, or Tamar in her own betrayal, or Ruth in her poverty, or David in his own murderous adultery? Who would have thought that it would be through these individuals that God would send the Savior of the world, and yet that's exactly what he does. God is teaching us, helping us see that whatever our past, whatever our sin, he is so gracious and so good that he can work any miracle, the greatest of all miracles, out of the greatest of our messes. That's what God does. He specializes in that. The bigger the mess, so often with God, the bigger the miracle he works. That's what God does because he's a saving and he's a redeeming God. Remember, this is the gospel according to whom? Matthew. Friends, who is Matthew? He was a tax collector. He was a traitor who raised money for Rome. Matthew was a scandalous sinner. Matthew should have been the last person in the world to be writing this good news about a Jewish savior for the world because Matthew wasn't good. But that's because, friends, our salvation is never about our merit. It's about God's mercy. It's not about our goodness. It's always about God's grace. Friends, if you identify with some of these, if you identify as a sinner, if you see the mess of your own life, this gospel, this Jesus is your Jesus. You need this Jesus, if you see yourself as morally upright, you don't need this Jesus. You won't relate to this Jesus. He'll be no friend to you. He has nothing to offer you. But God came for sinners, for those who know they're lost, right? He came for them. He died for them. He rose for them. And he's going to return for them, which may explain why the last bit of 14 generations actually adds up to 13 now, don't go counting it because you're going to ignore everything else I say. You can just look at it later, all right? It seems one short. And that may be because they needed to remember that in one sense they were still in exile. Jesus would come. He would die for the sins of his people. And yet their exile would not finally be complete until he comes back and takes them home. So friend, if you are here and you are not a believer in this Jesus Christ, he is your sovereign and he can be your savior. Though it does require you to see your need. You need to identify as a sinner, even a scandalous one. And it's in those people for whom God works marvelously. As they look to Jesus who died on the cross for their sins, who rose from the grave victorious over sin, 
repent of those sins, and place their trust in him. This Jesus can be your Savior, friend. Now maybe this Christmas you're going to be gifted with one of those DNA kits. You know, I was, again, not long ago. But if you're gifted with one, recognize even as you send in that information or get whatever, well, you send in the sample and get whatever information back, just recognize the most significant genealogy is not yours. Whatever family tree, however interesting it may be, that's not the one that should interest you the most. This genealogy is to be the genealogy that concerns you. Because actually this genealogy is meant to be your genealogy. For this Jesus is your sovereign. And this Jesus, Matthew says, can also be your savior. The one birthed in a long line of sinners can save sinners and only he can save sinners like you and me. So you know, maybe Ancestry.com was right. Maybe a genealogy is the gift that can bring a family together. You know, maybe they're right in that tagline. But recognize they're right not in the sense of seeing where any biological genealogy leads on our end, but whether or not our spiritual genealogies, our spiritual lives, will be linked to this Jesus who saves sinners. Friends, will your genealogy be linked spiritually to this Jesus? Let's pray.